This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Squarespace. You can easily create your website and make it absolutely beautiful through a simple, intuitive process. You can add and arrange your content and your features with the click of a mouse. You'll have an absolutely beautiful website without having to know how to code. To get your free trial at squarespace.com, enter offer code HISTORY and get 10% off your first purchase. That's squarespace.com and offer code HISTORY. I am Scott. And I'm Ben. And we're from Car Stuff. We're the podcast that covers everything that floats, flies, swims, or drives. Adventures, thrills, chills, literally planes, trains, and automobiles. That's right. And you can find all of our episodes on Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, and really anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So if you've been listening to our show for more than six months or so, you know it's become a tradition to have a couple of episodes at the end of the year devoted to things that got unearthed either literally or figuratively over the course of the prior year. And it's a tradition that past hosts of the show started that first year that Holly and I came on. It was kind of a struggle because in addition to the fact that we started on the show in March, so we had missed a couple of months, we didn't really start keeping track of it <laughs> until really late in the game. Uh, so we fixed that problem, and now we have the opposite problem. We're halfway through the year, and our Pinterest board, where we keep track of all this stuff, has 196 pens on it. There are more than it now, because I have pinned things since I wrote that down. <laughs> the 2015 board had 137 pins on it for the entire year, and the the 2014 board had even fewer. So we know these favorites, these episodes are favorites for a lot of our listeners, and we made a poll. We made a poll, and we put that poll up on our Facebook and our Twitter and asked, would you rather have a mid-year unearthed episode and two at the end of the year like normal, or do more than two at the end of the year, or stick with two episodes and just don't do anything different? Just talk about fewer of the things that we heard about over the year. And it was kind of a hilarious chart to watch because it started as just a circle and then it very quickly resolved into one big piece and two little pieces that did not change shape anymore. <laughs> the, num- <laughs> the, whole- the numbers change, but the proportions remain the steady proportions as could be. <laughs> said exactly the same. Overwhelmingly, like with more than 80% of the vote, people wanted a mid-year unearthed podcast. So that's what we're doing. Uh, and we're going to focus today's episode a lot on things that are p- uh, updates of previous episodes that have been unearthed, because a lot of times that's what's freshest on people's minds when they ask us to put things in the unearthed uh, list of things to talk about. Past hosts tackled the Black Death on the show. And even though that happened in 1347, people are still researching it and discovering or theorizing about the nuances of what happened and how it managed to kill so much of the population of Europe. A team from the Initiative for the Science of the Human Past at Harvard announced that ice core research suggests that an existing famine in Europe was a big part in why the Black Death was so very devastating. The announcement actually came last November, but it didn't really make news until January of this year. This ice core was drilled from the Alps in 2013, and this was the first ice core that has been extracted specifically for historical study and not so much for just scientific study and climate study and that sort of thing. 
It basically places the Black Death as an event that followed a prolonged period of cool, wet weather that would have led to widespread food shortages over a lot of the same area that was then struck by the plague. So following this food shortage, the theory goes, Europe's population was already really weak, and that really weak population could not fight off the disease very well. Uh, in January, a team of historians announced that they had finally confirmed the precise location of hangings in the Salem witch trials. There have been multiple theories about the exact location over the years, most of them connected in some way to Gallows Hill. And research into the exact location has hinged on one particular detail. There's extensive documentation related to the trials, but nothing that suggests that gallows were built. So historians have operated under the idea that the hangings were done from the limbs of a tree. So this latest attempt to pinpoint the location of the executions combined that knowledge with aerial photography, eyewitness accounts from when the hangings took place, and mapping technology. The eyewitness accounts then had to be cross-referenced with deed records. So if somebody was watching the hanging from the windows of a house Where was that house located exactly, and what parts of Gallows Hill could be seen from the house? Eventually, the team narrowed the location down to Proctor's Ledge, which is farther down Gallows Hill than some of the other suggested Gallows locations. It's right by a Walgreens today. Uh, Salem is planning to construct a memorial there that should be dedicated in June of 2017. So I went to a talk on this at a, a thing called History Camp in Boston earlier this year. And it it was delightful. Number one, it was delightful to hear the the whole history of attempts to try to find this place, as well as prior attempts to build a memorial there, some of which were were by today's standards very tacky. Um but the thing that was the best about it was the historians who were talking about it, you could tell their chagrin that the witch trials are what brings most people to Salem for tourism purposes. And then the way that story is handled in a lot of places is not like the devastating and tragic event that it really was. Uh, like a lot of the atmosphere is more like, woo, witches are scary. It's Halloween, which Halloween's great, but this was a bunch of innocent people getting hanged <laughs> that have now been turned into <laughs> sensationalized um, tourist merchandise. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So like they, they, there was definitely a sense of kind of frustration with that flavor of a lot of not definitely not all, but a lot of the the atmosphere in Salem and the hope that this monument will have like another more accurate representation of the, the history of what actually happened during the witch trials. So next up in June. So just last month. Researchers announced the results of imaging studies on the Antikythera mechanism. So as we discussed in our episode on that mechanism, this is a small device that was brought up from a shipwreck off of a Greek island by the same name, and it's been the subject of a whole lot of study. Researchers had already figured out that was basically an an astronomical analog computer to track things like eclipses and the positions of stars, and people have even built working reproductions of it out of Lego. 
And most of our updates on the Antikythera mechanism have been about other relics that were brought up from that same shipwreck. But this time we have one about the mechanism itself. Uh, there is writing on at least 82 known fragments of the device. This consists of thousands of characters that up until this point had not been deciphered very well. These characters were too small and too inaccessible. You couldn't really get to some of them without damaging the device. And in some cases, they weren't even visible to the naked eye. There was already a 2006 paper in the journal Nature describing text from the front and back doors, as well as the back plate and lower back dial of the device. But all of these are relatively accessible pieces of the text. And at the same time, even by that year's imaging standards, they were really hard to decipher. And a lot of the the provisional translations that were published as part of that paper are spotty at, at best. They they sound kind of like random astronomical words <laughs> put on a paper. <laughs> like I was I was gonna try to have like a quote of some of them and I none of them they they just all felt like random word soup of of astronomy words. It kind of feels like someone taught a parrot like astronomy vocabulary and then it just spits out like what it knows in random yeah. order. There's no real There's no structure to it. It's very difficult. So using scanning equipment, including CT scans and polynomial texture mapping, a team has analyzed and deciphered about a quarter of the original text on the device. Although some media outlets have described this text as a user's manual, the research team has actually described it more as an interpretive sign at a museum. So not so much a how-to manual of how to use the device, but an explanation of what you're seeing when you're using it. Uh, And our last thing before we take a quick break, we are still trying to figure out exactly what's going on with Queen Nefertiti's tomb and whether it is actually in a secret location uh, in the Tomb of King Tut. This is something that we talked about in our most recent year-end installment of Unearthed. Egyptologist Nicholas Reeves of the University of Arizona published a paper detailing irregularities that look like maybe they could be plastered over doorways in King Tut's tomb, and he theorized that it's the secret burial place of Nefertiti. Further scans completed after we recorded that end-of-year episode suggest that, yes, there might be something back there, and a news conference held in March made it all sound really promising. However, a team of National Geographic radar specialists could not replicate the results, and there's been turnover in Egypt's Ministry of Antiquities. The new minister has declared, quote, no physical exploration will be allowed unless there is 100% certainty that there is a cavity behind the wall. It seems unlikely that this one will be resolved in six months when we do our year-end unearthed. But you never know, but I doubt it. You never know. (laughs) So uh, before we move on to our next uh, little chunk of past episode updates, we are going to take a brief break for a word from a sponsor. To get back into some things that have been brought up just in the first six months of this year, a team of historic royal palaces curators has suggested that an altar cloth found in Hertfordshire is made from pieces of a 16th century dress. And because this dress looks a lot like what she's wearing in a painting known as the Rainbow Portrait, there's a theory that this dress belonged to Queen Elizabeth I. Subject of several archival episodes of the show. There is not, however, a clear paper trail that definitively connects this this dress 
to the queen. And I will just say, if you have not seen the rainbow portrait, go and do an internet search for it right this second, because it is a spectacular piece of art and one of my favorite portraits of Elizabeth I. Uh, when we posted this story on our Facebook, there was a little bit of crankiness in the comments uh, that people shouldn't be surprised that an altar cloth used to be a dress because good fabric is expensive and people turn old dresses into other things all the time. Just look at your grandmother piecing her wedding dress into a quilt. Uh, but your grandmother probably was not Queen Elizabeth I. And even if it's not Queen Elizabeth's dress, it's still a really incredible find. The fabric is called cloth of silver, which by law could only be worn by royalty or high aristocracy. So even if it wasn't Queen Elizabeth's dress, there's likelihood that it was another notable person's dress. Uh, And there's also the part where that wonderful fabric has survived for hundreds of years. Yes, and is still really quite spectacular. And now we move on to some uh, closer-to-home unearthed news. On March 23rd, 1903, Orville and Wilbur Wright of Dayton, Ohio, filed a patent for their flying machine, complete with a diagram. And 36 years ago, that filing was misplaced after being loaned to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. The patent was supposed to appear in an exhibition on the 75th anniversary of the Wright brothers' first flight. And after the exhibition was over, it was marked as returned, but it was then lost. Somehow, it wound up in storage in Kansas. The National Archives found the original patent in March during a, quote, special program launched to recover alienated and stolen archival materials. It had just been misfiled. Uh, it's not hard to imagine how that happened, though. There are 269 million pages of patent records in the National Archives. Yeah, every time we have a story about something that was misplaced within an, an institution's own collection. We see a similar wave of, of crankiness. Yeah. Like get your act together, people. <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, you really, you just can't, you can't have a hundred percent accuracy on 269 million pages of patent records. Well, and I always liken it to, uh, in a, a way to make it maybe a little easier for people to grasp. Like if you have ever gone, to a library, you know that even with the best of intents, the books do not always end up in their proper place on the shelves. And some of that no. is because different people go in and touch them, but some of it is just because it's really sure. easy to misfile a slim book or a piece of paper. Yep, yep. It's always amusing to me. Uh, you know, I, I have my, the library here is part of a big network. And so you can request things from any library in the network. And more than once I have requested something and you can kind of watch the updates as, as it is being shipped to you. And occasionally like there'll be the thing that I requested and the, the status of this object becomes missing. And then I feel a little, a little bad that my request was what brought it up to the knowledge of everyone. Oh, this is actually missing. We don't know what happened to it. No, that's a good anyway. thing. Having worked in a library for a decade, <laughs> we love when those happen. <laughs> because while your heart sort of drops when you realize you don't know where that piece of the collection is, you at least know its status versus thinking it's there and safe as houses, only to find yeah. out later that it's, you know. I you want to have I an just, accurate an accurate true. cataloging of your collection. I just have weird guilt issues apparently. <laughs> so, 
And another thing that we've also also talked about in a previous episode of Unearthed, we talked about some newly discovered Nazca glyphs in Unearthed in 2015, which was an update to our podcast on the Nazca lines. We have another new discovery on that point. It's basically another geoglyph that looks like an animal with a long tongue. Archaeologist Masato Sakai, part of the research team, said that he thinks this geoglyph represents an imaginary animal and not a real one. I sort of think we're just going to keep finding them, finding (laughs) Nazca glyphs forever. I think so, too. We just did a podcast on the Yelling Stones and Denmark's early royalty, like just did it. Uh, Literally three days later, news broke of a discovery of a really intriguing crucifix found by an amateur archaeologist with a metal detector. And he found that crucifix during an afternoon off of work. So this crucifix looks almost identical to one previously found in Sweden. And the Swedish figure has been dated to the first half of the 10th century. So if this crucifix that was found in Denmark is authenticated and dated to the same period, that means it predates the Yelling Stones, which were erected in 965 and were to this point believed to contain the oldest representation of Jesus on the cross in all of Denmark. So basically, if this turns out to be true and this is a verified piece of uh, uh, artifact, it will completely rewrite the history that we talked about less than a week before this news broke. <laughs> it cracks me up. Me too. Uh, we get, we get, we, we get requests, uh, for episodes sometimes that are more recent than we normally talk about. And there are a lot of reasons that we don't talk about things that are really recent, but one of them is that they're, they are more likely for this to happen. <laughs> Yeah, there's, you know, developing stories everywhere, and the newer they are, the more developing they are. Yes, so that's one of many reasons. So, okay, it's time for yet another update on Pablo Neruda. Uh, In Unearthed in 2013, we talked about his having been uh, exhumed in part of an investigation to figure out whether he had been poisoned or had really died of cancer, as was claimed at the time of his death. And then in Unearthed in 2015, so six months ago, we talked about how Chile's Neruda Foundation had issued a demand that his body be reburied immediately because it had not been in that whole window between the exhumation we talked about in 2013 and 2015 when that demand was made. And now in fresh updates, uh, in February of 2016, the judge overseeing this investigation ordered that his remains be returned to their tomb and also recommended that some small bone samples be preserved. Neruda was buried again for the fourth time in April. Manuel Araya, who was Neruda's bodyguard and personal secretary, insists that he was murdered, although none of these investigations have determined that to be true. As a sort of tangential part of that update, 21 poems discovered after his death were also published in May in the collection, quote, Then Come Back, The Lost Neruda Poems, to what I would call mixed reviews. <laughs> like, there are lots of people who say that it is great, and then some other people who say they should have stayed lost. So I guess even when you are a deceased Famous Chilean poet, you cannot please everyone. Nope. 
Back in 2013, we did a podcast about the history of domesticated cats. We talked about the widespread belief that ancient Egyptians domesticated cats, but that an 8,000-year-old jawbone found on the island of Cyprus indicated that cats and people were probably living closely together by then. Not necessarily in a totally domesticated sense, but certainly moving in that direction. So in that past episode, we did not really get into how cats made their way to China. But for a long time, that was the subject of a lot of debate. There's sort of a question, were cats domesticated in China? Or did people bring already domesticated cats to China from Western Asia and the Mediterranean in about 3000 BCE, which was the first known appearance of domesticated cats in China? And to answer that question, researchers studied five small cat skulls and determined that all five belong to the leopard cat and all date back to about 3500 BCE, so earlier than visitors were known to have brought cats to Eastern Asia. The leopard cat is a small wild cat common to much of Eastern Asia, which, just like the species from that 8,000-year-old jawbone from Cyprus, lives in areas with lots of humans. So it seems most likely that the same process that played out in Cyprus played out in China as well, meaning that cats were domesticated independently in both places. And we are still not done learning things from Utsi. I don't think we ever will be. Me neither. So everyone's favorite Iceman has had his DNA sequenced, his tattoos counted, and now the contents of his stomach analyzed and the bacteria that were living in there have had their DNA sequenced. He was found to have H. pylori bacteria in his gut, and half of all people living today having it too. This is the bacteria that in some people causes ulcers. Some researchers have speculated that humans have always been infected with H. pylori, and this is certainly a suggestion that if it wasn't always, it was at least for a very, very long time. Uh, however, Utsi's H. pylori is a strain more common in South Asia today, not one that's common in Europeans. It's long been theorized that an Asian and an African strain of the bacteria combined to form one that is common in Europe nowadays. So with Utsi's H. pylori analyzed, it seems as though that probably happened after he lived. And there's also ongoing research into his mitochondrial DNA as well. So maybe that will be another update to Utsi sometime in the future. Uh, we're going to have another brief sponsor break before we get to some things that are not updates of old episodes. So now that we're through the updates and we are sure more stuff will happen that will pertain to old episodes before the end of the year, if not, I will frankly be astonished. Here is just some other cool assorted stuff. In February, archaeologists announced a major find in New Zealand. Food storage pits dating back to before the 1800s in Pillins Point, which is on the northern coast of New Zealand's North Island. The site was found during archaeological excavations in advance of roadwork, and it provides evidence of a large Maori settlement in the area. Upon further study, archaeologists from Heritage New Zealand found 25 underground food storage buildings and one above-ground food storage building. And this suggests a really large Maori settlement that had lived in the area somewhere between 200 and 400 years ago, although radiocarbon dating had not been done yet to pinpoint exactly when. Archaeologists also found pieces of obsidian and some stone adzes. 
The discovery is notable because Maori food storage structures have been found in other parts of New Zealand pretty frequently, but not in this location. It's also notable because in spite of lots of effort, we don't hear that many archaeological updates from that part of the world. Correct. Or Africa or South America. (laughs) Our unearthed episodes tend to be pretty American, European, some of Asia centric. Uh, So I was really excited to hear one from New Zealand because I think that might actually be the first inclusion of New Zealand in the entirety of unearthed episodes I have worked on. I could be wrong. A marriage contract witnessed by Napoleon Bonaparte and his wife, Josephine, was put up for auction on Valentine's Day in Palm Beach, Florida. The marriage was between General August Hulin and Marie-Jean-Louise Thersonnier. I did not pronounce either of those names very well in terms of French. They got married on May 30th, 1804 in Paris. And so this was signed not long after Napoleon declared himself emperor, but before his coronation ceremony. And it's one of very few known documents bearing his signature to be held in a private collection. The couple's own marriage contract was sold at auction in 2014 for 437,500 euros. The expected price for this one was $20,000, although we were not able to discern what it ultimately sold for. Yeah, I, I then tried to go figure it out and, uh, I could have called the auction house on the phone, I guess, but I did not. The world's oldest known case of scurvy was unearthed in Egypt in the form of a skeleton of a one-year-old child. And the skeleton dates to between 3800 and 3600 BCE. Analysis of the bones revealed the structural changes that are caused by scurvy, typically. Although the researchers are definitely not sure what caused the vitamin C deficiency in this particular child. One of the very first announcements of the year, literally it came out on January 1st, was about an archaeological expedition from the Institute of Archaeology of the Russian Academy of Sciences, unearthing what appears to be Ivan the Terrible's private military arsenal. The dig was at the site of a 16th century village known to be home to the Boyar family, one of Ivan's hand-picked thousand bigwigs. This dig, which also excavated 60 village buildings, found a very large structure lined with timber, and in it there were just all kinds of armor and weapons. The weapons included arrows, sabers, and kolchugs, which are a type of cuirass. And among the armor were spiked helmets used by Russian knights. There were supplies, too, including camp tents and, and cooking gear. And this doesn't appear to have been a secret cache, but a warehouse meant to keep a private standing army ready to go. And on a lighter note than that, just to wrap things up, in late May, so pretty recently, Ars Technica picked up a story from New Scientist. uh, And the Ars Technica one was the one that seemed to be shared a whole lot. Uh, And this was about the world's oldest paycheck stub. Uh, this is now housed in the British Museum, and it's a 5,000-year-old clay tablet marked in cuneiform from Mesopotamia, detailing that this particular worker was paid in beer. <laughs> I saw that on my Facebook wall so many times. Me too! So that's just some of the highlights of the almost 200 things on our unearthed uh, Pinterest board. We will see what additional things are unearthed between now and the end of the year. I can't even imagine, but I'm excited. Maybe there will be more exciting fabric finds. 
That would be cool. I kept like I as as I was pinning, I was like, we're gonna we're gonna pass where we were for all of last year. And then I realized <laughs> we were only we were halfway through the year and had way more pins than last year. Uh and I think some of that is because I keep broadening the like the sites that I keep up with right to find stuff be- because I do feel like it's important to have more uh more findings from more of the world than we have typically been able to do so that's part of it <laughs> and a little bit of it is that sometimes I will pin something and then I will find a better story on it and I will pin that one too yeah um but I think some of it is just that there is a lot going on that seems interesting. And even though I, there are some broad categories that I don't pin every single one, like every single hoard of Viking coins found in Britain, like I, I have stopped pinning all of those <laughs> because it happens like literally all the time. I only pin the hoard of Viking coins if it's notable in some way. Uh, but even with that, it's just that we're overrun with things that have come out of the ground or closets or altars <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. Listener mail is from Sasha. And so to as a context, a question that we have been asked sometimes on our Facebook uh, is why certain episodes are not tagged a particular way on our website. And the answer to that is that the tags did not exist until the website existed. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and the, the web, the, the podcasts have been out for a while. We pot, we had a bunch of podcasts before tags even existed. And so a bunch of things are not tagged because like Holly and I did not work on them and there were not tags when those podcasts initially came out. So it sort of led to a question of what would you do if a listener just sent you a bunch of tags? So hello, Holly and Tracy. Several months ago, I commented on one of your Facebook posts and Tracy and I discussed the tagging system on your website. I asked if someone were to listen to all the episodes and send you a list of possible tags for each, if that would be okay. And she insinuated that such a list would not be turned away. (laughs) Well, after several months of devoted listening and note-taking, I have made up a list of the first 270 episodes. I actually have made a list of possible tags for all the episodes before the Holly and Tracy era, but they're all on scrap scrap paper, and I'm still working on digitizing them. I really wanted to complete the entire catalog of pre-Holly and Tracy era episodes, but the time has gotten away from me, and I figured it would be better to send you a partial list than to not send it at all. So I will continue to work on digitizing all the tags I've come up with and send it your way in a hopefully timely manner. Haha, I have not yet re-listened to all of the Holly and Tracy era because I wasn't sure if you guys were in need of help with those episodes since you have the show notes and everything on them. If there is a need, let me know. I wouldn't mind re-listening to all those, too. I haven't listed every possible tag for each episode, as I wasn't sure how specific you wanted the tags, but hopefully it's a good start, and perhaps you guys can build off them and add more that would be appropriate. Uh, and then Sasha also sent some some pictures of dolls. There's a, a, a doll collection and customization hobby, uh, and so there was a doll picture attached. So, first of all, thank you so much. I think what I said, like, we had a whole conversation about where, like, could you have volunteers do this? And I said, well, we're part of a for-profit company. Like, a for-profit company can't rely on volunteer labor. And like, we had this whole back and forth, like, a philosophical philosophical debate. 
And it sort of came around to, well, if somebody basically gave you a present and the present was tags, and I was like, well, I mean, I'd, I'd probably be really delighted to receive a present of tags. And so that is exactly what Sasha's done here. So thank you so much. Thank you. 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 Um, we have not put the tags on the website yet because we are anticipating some forthcoming updates to the like the architecture of our website that will make it way easier to update those kinds of things in bulk than we currently can do. So I have these squirreled away in a safe place for that pending change when it happens. Uh, and again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's so uh, like the, we have great dreams of, of things to do with, with tags. And then it's the, the when it's just two of us, not all dreams come true in a timely manner. <laughs> not necessarily. And then I also, I have a very quick thing just to end on because I got this email this morning and then I, I laughed so hard that I hurt myself. It is from Jonathan who writes about our Jacobite rebellion uh, podcast that just came out uh, yesterday as of when we are recording. And Jonathan says, I just wanted to let you guys know that your latest podcast on the Jacobite Rebe- rebellion has inspired what is undoubtedly the best new band name ever. Imposter baby and the France's advances. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I was thank you. I was hugely delighted. So thank you, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you again for the tags, Sasha, and thank you, Jonathan, for that delightful band name. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast from History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com, we're also on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash History, and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com/slash History. Also, our Instagram is MissedInHistory. If you're following us on Facebook and you've noticed that you don't seem to ever see anything we post, turn your notifications on for our page and you will be notified when we post new stuff. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. And you can put in the word archaeology in the search bar. You will find an article about how archaeology works. If you would like to come to our website that is MissedInHistory.com, you will find the show notes to all the episodes Holly and I have done. You will find an archive of every episode ever. At some point, they will all be tagged, and that will be wonderful. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 